Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, an interesting moment. Boris Johnson blinked. He's made a key concession on his Brexit plan in order to get it through Parliament. The Prime Minister has agreed to give the House of Commons a final veto over whether the government can override parts of the divorce agreement. Now, it comes as one of the government's most senior legal officers, the Advocate General for Scotland, Richard Keane, resigned over the controversial proposals. And the plan also coming under fire by senior members of the House of Lords, including former Conservative leader Michael Howard. He told Bloomberg earlier on that the Prime Minister's concessions haven't changed his mind about voting the bill down once it reaches the upper house. My objection to this bill is that it invites Parliament to use its sovereignty. Parliament is undoubtedly sovereign in the United Kingdom, but it invites Parliament to use its sovereignty to break international law. And uh, I don't think Parliament should be asked to do that. I don't think the government should have asked Parliament to do that. So the only thing that would satisfy me, as far as I can see at the moment, is if the government were to withdraw from the bill those parts of it which would breach international law. Not all the bill is against international law, but some parts of it are. Well, that was the Conservative peer, Michael Howard. Let's hear from one of his colleagues on the red benches, because joining us now is Jonathan Oates, who's Liberal Democrat, Lord's spokesperson on the climate emergency and energy. And indeed, we're going to discuss uh, your main themes, uh, Jonathan, in just a moment, of course, including the government's plans for greener energy and your push for hydrogen. But first, let's address uh, that issue that uh, that Lord Howard was talking about there, um, because in the end, uh, a lot of people think this is where this bill is going to come to grief, in that House of Lords, particularly if uh, there are many senior Conservatives in the House of Lords who won't pass it. What's your sense of how it's going to proceed? Well, I think uh, Lord Howard speaks uh, for the whole of the House of Lords, really, with with very few exceptions. Um, I cannot see any circumstances in which the House of Lords will agree to um, to a bill which breaks international law. So, uh, and, I uh, and as Lord Howard said, the idea that, um, that, that the amendment to give uh, MPs the right to decide whether uh, they break international law, I don't think is going to uh, have much shrift in the House of Lords. So, um, I, think, I think it's in big difficulty, and I think the government's uh, in big difficulty. 
But the, the Lords is unusually powerful here because there's a deadline at the end of the year. I mean, often the power of the Lords is to delay legislation, but that's really potent. So the logical conclusion to that is that this bill can't get onto the statute books by the end of the year as the government wants. Is that the right reading of it? Well, that would be my view. I mean, I have not uh, spoken in, in detail um, across all the parties, but I would imagine, particularly in light of the comments of Lord Howard, who is, of course, a supporter of Brexit, but he is also a supporter of maintaining our international law obligations. I would have thought uh, that we would definitely uh, not only uh, pass the relevant amendments to remove those sections of the bill that breach international law, but if necessary, we would stand firm in pushing back on the uh, House of Commons if it tried to, uh, to, to overturn that. And of course, as you rightly say, whilst we don't have the power to veto uh, bills indefinitely, we do have the power to delay them, and that is important in this context. I imagine that is uh, where this is going to go. Uh, and it, it really is an astonishing situation that we find ourselves, and not least because the bill doesn't even address the issue that uh, Boris Johnson has tried to suggest, that in some way that the EU would blockade uh, food from arriving in Northern Ireland, even if they had the power to do so, which they clearly don't. Um, the bill doesn't even address it. So, um, no, I think this is, um, this, this is going to be blocked. I well, certainly hope it will be. Well, Jonathan, on the, speaking to that issue about Northern Ireland, because that is actually very interesting, because a number of people who oppose it, oppose it obviously on, on the grounds that it might break international law. But the other uh, part of it is this fear of the Good Friday Accord. What might happen? The American, uh, the, the Congress, in fact, has spoken about this and their concerns, which might, of course, impede a US trade deal with the UK. But uh, interestingly, Lord Howard said, no, that's a red herring. Uh, what's your view about that? Well, I don't think it is a red herring. I can't see any circumstances in which we, uh, the UK Parliament, passed a law that specifically, and not in my words, but in the words of the government, breaches international law and, as a result, um, potentially compromises the Good Friday Agreement. I can't see any circumstances in which the Congress, which has the uh, responsibility for trade matters, would agree to a free trade deal with, with us. Uh, so it Again, it is quite astonishing, given that one of the great promises of Brexit from Boris Johnson and others was we were going to be signing all these free tra trade agreements. Uh, well, it doesn't seem a very sensible start to start tearing up the agreements you've already made. Right. I've got to ask you about your uh, your other big issue, and that is securing a UK hydrogen strategy. You've secured a debate in the laws today on the topic. Uh, it's always, to give the context, it's part of the country's decarbonisation efforts, of course. Uh, how important is this to those wider efforts? Can the government hit its 2050 uh, target of net zero carbon emissions without this sort of strategy? No, I don't believe that they can. And uh, indeed, a number of reports... Um, from organisations like the National Infrastructure uh, Commission and, and others that have made absolutely clear that uh, hydrogen is key in order to achieve the net zero target. Uh, it, it can both provide important storage medium for intermittent renewables. Um, it's key for heavy goods vehicles and for heavy passenger vehicles, such as buses and, and, and trains, where battery electric um, uh, it doesn't really work. And of course, you know, we all heat our homes, well, a large number of us heat our homes with natural gas, and a third of our emissions in the UK uh, come from domestic homes. 
hydrogen is the, the, the obvious way in which we can replace that. So uh, it is absolutely critical in, in net zero. And we uh, have the benefit of having uh, leading British companies having uh, the cutting edge technologies. So real key is that we don't miss the bus like we did on, on wind energy. Well, I mean, let's just take us through what the hydrogen strategy is, because a lot of people not very uh, uh, informed by this won't exactly know how it would affect, what kind of things would be on board, what kind of issues would be tackled, how it would work. Just take us through some of the basics. Yeah, well, hydrogen can be made um, entirely cleanly using renewable power and water. Um, and you basically electrolyze the water and you produce hydrogen. And hydrogen can then be used as a fuel uh, in cars, in, in heavy good vehicles, in, in the gas system, as I, I've said. But importantly, um, as we know, with renewable power, um, there are issues that, you know, there are times when the wind blows a lot and there are times when it blows less and there's times when the sun shines more and when it uh, shines less. And... Um, one of the key roles that hydrogen can also play is as a storage medium because you, you convert the water into the hydrogen and then you can store it and you can turn it on uh, uh, when you need it. Um, so, it so it really has a, a, a very important role to play. Also, of course, it would help us out immensely in energy security uh, because uh, we, you don't have to import anything. Um, it, it's, it's a very basic commodity and it has no emission, uh, uh, carbon emission, it just uh, just water out of the vehicle. So it, it, it's a really important thing. We, we have, as I've said, um, cutting-edge technology in, in the production of buses and the production of the first world's first hydrogen boilers here in the UK. And, uh, and we're busy building the world's first gigawatt green hydrogen factory in Sheffield. There's real opportunities here, but we're not seeing, A, the strategy yet from the government, and B, the money behind it to ensure that we maintain our cutting edge in these areas. Uh, and what sort of discussions have you had with the government at this stage? Are you receiving pushback on this, or is it is it more of a, a silent response? No, the, the government acknowledges uh, the importance. It, it says that it is going to produce um, a hydrogen strategy, um, and we, we are looking forward to that. Uh, but, you know, we are competing in the world. And Germany have just committed 9 billion euros over the next 10 years in terms of funding for its hydrogen strategy. The, the EU um, Strategic Investment Facility has just committed 15 billion uh, euros. And uh, we've just got a very piecemeal uh, approach. And our companies, which, as I said, are cutting edge, uh, they need the government to get behind it so that we are not outpaced by competitors who, who do have governments behind them. Do you really think, though, with all the financial interests that are tied up in our energy industry, this kind of change is going to be, well, certainly not easy. Is it even going to be possible, do you think, in the near future? Well, it's not only possible, it's absolutely essential. And, of course, the one thing about uh, hydrogen is you can use a lot of existing infrastructure so for for instance hydrogen can flow through our our gas networks and infrastructure um and and therefore it is it is a medium that we understand and which hopefully um the the the, the industries can start to convert to and that's what 
they need to think about a lot of the technological prowess in our oil and gas industry uh, can be shifted towards um, hydrogen production and distribution. But we need to get ahead of the game. We need to do it. This is one of the great advantages of of hydrogen, that it does offer us the potential to, to make this change and do it whilst protecting jobs and indeed creating many, many more. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a look at some of the other stories in the world of politics today. We start with the possibility or indeed the the reality of a new lockdown affecting most of northeast England because of rising cases there. Uh, This is according to Health Secretary Matt Hancock, who's saying that it will affect areas including Newcastle, Sunderland and County Durham from tomorrow. And restrictions could include a ban on households mixing and pubs being ordered to close earlier. And North Durham's Labour MP Kevin Jones is critical, though, of the government's strategy. It's testing people, finding the people that are positive, and then isolating them. What we've got here is uh, a shotgun approach uh, rather than the uh, more precision uh, approach which is actually needed. And that can only be done by local professionals who know their areas. Kevin Jones there, the Labour MP for North Durham. And we heard from Boris Johnson as well. He spoke to today's son. He was talking about uh, a nationwide curfew. He says that's the sort of measure that could be needed if the rule of six doesn't work. But he firmly rejects a full second lockdown, no doubt keeping a keen eye on the state of the economy, as he says that. Also keeping a firm eye on Christmas. Apparently he's got a plan to avoid this all ruining everyone's Christmas. But let's go back to Brexit, which also could ruin everyone's Christmas, I suppose. But uh, (laughs) the US Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden has now got involved in the latest uh, concerns. He's warning about the impact of Boris Johnson's plans on a potential trade deal. He says an agreement with Washington on trade depends on continued respect for the Northern Ireland peace process and the Good Friday Agreement. And his intervention shows that government plans to renege on part of the EU divorce agreement, well, they might make other trade deals a little bit more tricky. Yeah, that's a threat that could either be very potent or entirely meaningless in just a couple of months' time. And then the former Transport Secretary Chris Grayling back in the news. He's landed a job, a £100,000 job, advising the owner of some of the country's top ports. He's still going to be a Conservative MP, but add Hutchison Ports to the portfolio, operates Harwich and Felixstowe, among other terminals. Uh, this according to the MP's Register of Interests, the financial interests, where they always have to declare, of course, what other income they have. He's going to pay, be paid for seven hours' work a week for a year. But then remember, this is the same Chris Grayling that came in for all of that criticism over his decisions as Transport Secretary, including awarding a government ferry contract 
to a group of operators which had no ships. Labour, I believe, calling him the worst transport secretary in history. But then they would say that, wouldn't they? And there has been some competition, it has to be said. But let's now look further into the internal market bill. Now, Boris Johnson agreeing last night, it seems, to give MPs a final veto on breaking the Brexit divorce agreement. What does it actually mean in practice? Let's dissect some of this with Craig Prescott, who's lecturer in law at Bangor University. Craig, welcome to the programme. Um, I know one of the your specialities is the constitutional implications of Brexit, so this is absolute meat and drink to you. It seems to be a political climb down. Is it really more of a legal one? Um, I think in in some respects this is a political and and parliamentary climb down. Um, The bill as introduced into Parliament would have allowed any regulations to be made potentially on picking the Northern Irish Protocol. Um, They would have become law subject to being struck down uh, by any vote held by the Commons or the House of Lords. Now, that has been flipped so that these, uh, as we understand it, the regulations that could be made under the Internal Market Bill will only become law if they're approved by a vote of the House of Commons. So they're shifting the procedure here to give MPs more control. Now, of course, the issue is Boris Johnson does have an 83 80-seat majority or so in the House of Commons, how much more control is he really giving MPs here? Um, In that, would he be likely to win any vote on the regulations, given that his intentions are pretty clear in in the worst-case scenario, and the bill has already had its second reading? So at what point, then, is the law broken? Does that change now that Parliament may be able to have a say in all of this as well? Not well, if, you, if you're thinking of in terms of international law, then there are yeah. potentially two ways in which international law has been broken. Firstly, the mere existence of this power um, to unpick the Northern Irish Protocol could itself be seen to be a breach of international law because the UK government has signed up to commitments to implement the Northern Irish Protocol in full because that's what it's agreed to. Um, so the, there's the mere existence of this power could be argued to be a breach of international law, then there could be a more substantive breach when these regulations come in and then take effect. So, And that might be more likely to trigger commission um, action from the European Union um, because there, they, there would be a substantive breach of the withdrawal agreement. But the point in all this, I guess, Craig, is that, and the point the government's made, that they haven't broken the law at any point until they actually enact these uh, these articles, if indeed they have to and they don't want to. So it, it, at this stage, if this bill is passed, technically they haven't broken the law, have they? Um, they won't have breached UK law um, at all because Parliament is, is sovereign, so merely passing an act of Parliament does not breach UK law. But there is, there is a, a sort of perhaps a more technical point that, um, that that some lawyers are making, that passing these regulations or, or having the power to pass these regulations that could potentially breach the Northern Irish Protocol in and of itself could be a breach of international law. So if the Act gets, if the Internal Market Bill is passed, 
then at that moment there could be a breach of international law in perhaps quite a technical way, but still in, in a way that's, that's significant and is controversial, um, particularly if you're a potential trading partner of the UK um, and the UK wants to um, enter into a free trade agreement with you and you see the UK unpicking, maybe in a, in a technical and limited sense, to use the term Brandon Lewis used, uh, last week, but um, I'm picking something that was agreed only nine months ago. That might give some people um, around the world cause for concern and might make them think about how they might approach a free trade agreement with the UK. And returning to the EU specifically, so their threat was, if you don't pull this bill by the end of uh, by the end of the month, we are going to take action. Uh, but a moment ago, you said that it may be slightly, slightly later down the line. Does that change, uh, or does this amendment change the point at which the EU might then take some sort of an action against the UK? Um, it probably doesn't, because essentially from the EU's perspective, um, what goes on in Parliament is, is by and large irrelevant. Um, they will just look at the output of the legislative process, which is what the legislation says and any regulations that are passed. The processes by which that happens in Parliament are largely relevant for the EU. They're a matter for us in the UK and for the government to get its legislation through. Um, the big question about all of this is the House of Lords. Mm. Um, the House of Lords are likely to look at these clauses um, extensively, and I, I'm very doubtful that they will come back from the House of Lords unamended. I think you're likely to see some quite extensive amendments made in the House of Lords, and then the issue is how does the government and the House of Commons respond to those amendments? Um, well, can I, can I break in on that, Craig, and also ask about judicial review and other other things that might be available within the, the court process, I suppose one might say. Uh, now, the government's got something that seems to limit judicial review. Does that mean we're not going to see any uh, moves, as we saw last year, uh, uh, of the courts being able to limit what the government can do in this regard? Um, I can very well imagine that if and when regulations are made under this, bill once it becomes an act. Um, someone will certainly have a go. Um, I can imagine one thing we've learned from the Brexit process is that there is always some someone willing to fund crowdfunded litigation to sort of put arguments before the court. Um, I can imagine that, that someone will do that, have a go. Um, the issue is how will the courts respond? And the courts have the particular power to interpret legislation. And what this bill tries to do is to make it impossible for the courts to interpret this legislation in a way that stops any regulations being made that breaches the Northern Irish Protocol. And the issue there is, has, does this bill entirely succeed at that? Um, there are cases in the past where the courts have gone a very, very long way, not to entirely rewriting legislation, but to sort of saying it's still not been clear enough for us. Um, and they've interpreted away some of the difficulties that, that could arise. 
um, as to whether this goes this goes further than anything um, that's gone before in terms of breaching international law or breaching the rule of law, which the courts very strongly uphold, um, as to whether it excludes entirely the ability of the courts to review um, regulations made under this Act, I'm 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 not entirely sure. I don't think it's quite as clear as it's perhaps been made out. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.